Because of the um, extra things we have going on today, we're not going to have a a children's sermon. But before we um, get into the text this morning, I'd like us to have just a time of prayer. So let's pray together. Our Father, for the grace that you have shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, for answering prayers, for the healings in progress that we are seeing around us, your faithfulness in watching over us and providing for our needs. And as we come before you, Lord, our hearts are filled to overflowing with struggling to comprehend what it means to be loved by God. Father, we pray that you would just fill our hearts anew and afresh with an awareness of your presence in our lives. We thank you for the rain. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you are with us each day, and that each day is a gift that you've entrusted to our care. And for each day that you give, we give you thanks and praise and rejoicing. We just ask that today, as we remember anew and afresh the wonder, the amazement, of the power of the resurrection of Christ, that that power would be moving within us, changing us, challenging us, transforming us from the inside. Help us, Lord, to experience anew and afresh the wonder of the shed blood of Christ covering our sins, blotting out the mistakes and the sins of the past, and offering us new hope and new life. We pray, Lord, that with eyes open we will enter into that life and turn our back on the ways of darkness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This whole last um, week that we've been celebrating in the church, beginning with Palm Sunday, is one of the most critical times in all of history. Uh, We divide time based upon the birth of Jesus Christ. And the thing about history is that history has turning points. There are events that take place that have a world-changing effect and influence on everyone and everything. And once those events have happened, things are never the same. Now, these turning points, these hinges of history, they're not always noticeable at the time. When Jesus died on the cross... It was a a big event, in a sense, there in Jerusalem that day, but not so much really. And over in Rome, the Roman emperor didn't even know about it, and if he had known, he wouldn't have cared. And so most people in most of the world, it was business as usual, going through everyday life, and yet what was taking place when that stone was rolled away was a life-changing, a turning point in history. And from that point on, because of the power of the resurrection of Christ, um, it opens a door for a relationship with God that had never before been possible for most people. That's what he did. And the power of that resurrection continues to impact people even to the present day, giving us an opportunity to live life to its fullest and understand why we are created and what we're here for. And that our lives have value and purpose and meaning. 
And so these often seemingly insignificant choices in out-of-the-way places continue to have an incredible impact on all of us who are alive today. And that impact can be an increasing measure in our lives. But this morning I want to go back to um, just before the crucifixion. We're looking at John chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. This is John's account of the triumphal entry. And when he gets there, and there's this big celebration, people, because they've heard of the miracles, uh, Lazarus had been raised less than a, a week uh, before that time, and some of those people had been there and seen that. This man had been in the, in the tomb for four days, and Jesus calls his name, and he comes walking out alive and well. And so there's a great sense, an extra sense of excitement and expectation because everybody was beginning to question and ask, could this be the Messiah? The one we've been waiting for to free us from foreign oppression. Um, the people who've dominated and made our lives miserable all these years. And Jesus was and is the Messiah, but he wasn't that kind of a Messiah. Uh, it wasn't politics that he came to set right. He came to set right the hearts of men. And the good news is that when the hearts of men are set right, politics gets changed. And it doesn't happen any other way. So Jesus <clears throat> is there. His opposition is becoming very strong. They're determined to kill him. And so the Pharisees get together and they see the crowds and they hear the, the children and they see the palm branches and all of that. And there's this great uh, procession coming into Jerusalem that day. And they look at each other and they say, look, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And there were people from quite a few countries in the world that were there because of the Holy Day. And they were in despair. It's at this point that some of the disciples said to Jesus, there are some Greek people here that want to speak to you. Now this was both a door of opportunity and a door of temptation for Jesus because he knew, and it happens even to the present day, when the people of God have turned their hearts and backs against God, the people who have never heard him, never had an opportunity to know him, when they hear the truth, they respond. It's happening today in Africa. See it all the time. And in South America and in Asia. People who get an opportunity to hear for the very first time and understand what God has done for them through his son, they respond. And it's a wholehearted response. Um, my friend in Uganda, Uganda, they're working on a 95% Muslim, Muslim area on the Sudan border. And they're baptizing people, uh, 30, 40 at a time. Uh, people who are committing their life because there is active persecution there. Uh, people get beat up and run out of town. Um, and they come back because the heart is there. And so here's this opportunity. Uh, your people are rejecting you. Remember John chapter 1? He came into his own, but his own received him not. But to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, to them gave he power to become sons and daughters of God. So his people are in the process of rejecting him. These Greeks are saying, we want to talk to you. 
It's at this point in John chapter 12 that Jesus begins to talk about the kernel of wheat dying. He says, if you have a kernel of wheat, you've got one grain. But if you plant it in the ground and kill it, if it dies, then out of that death comes new life. And it's multiplied many times. And he invites people to follow him. That's a pretty tough sell, isn't it? Now in verse 27, Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Because he knows that crucifixion is coming. Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And so, Jesus is saying, uh, this is John's counterpart to uh, Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the essential prayer that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. Jesus coming into the garden, telling his disciples to watch and pray with him, uh, becoming very agitated, troubled deep within his soul and in his spirit, asking them to watch and pray with him for an hour. He goes and he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, not what I will, but what you will. And this is exactly what he said here in John 12. Shall I ask God to save me? Because the only way your salvation and mine can be bought is if he dies. If he doesn't die, then you and I are lost forever. Cut off from God for eternity. And he knows that. And as he says in his prayer, this is the very reason that I've come. And so the prayer that he prays, it's an incredibly powerful prayer. Short. Father, glorify your name. Knowing what that means for him. Suffering and torture, agony and shame, persecution and death. Publicly, as a public spectacle with his enemies rejoicing and mocking, um, rejoicing while he dies. He knows that's coming. Father, glorify your name. This command was going to be fulfilled. Later on in John chapter 18, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter, in his zeal and in his commitment to the Lord, draws a sword and tries to kill the man closest to him. His name was Malchus, the man that he tried to kill. Tried to cut his head off. And he cut his ear off because the guy ducked. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's the cup of God's wrath on sin. It's the cup of God's judgment poured out upon people who have rightfully deserved it and earned it like us and so Jesus is committing himself he's making a decision here not my will but yours be done to make a decision is to die to the alternative right to make a decision is to die 
to the alternative. This is what the scripture means when it talks to Christian people about dying to self. Because every day we make decisions to live for ourselves or to live the way God called us to live. We decide every day, many times every day. To make a decision is to die to the alternative. So Jesus is saying, Lord, <clears throat> glorify your name. If it means my death, not what I will, but what you will. And he committed himself to that. He died to the alternative. <clears throat> this is what Paul talks about in Romans 12:1 when he talks about daily being a living sacrifice of ourselves to God. He said, offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. This is, this is what real worship is. It's how we live everyday life. It's how we um, conduct business. It's how we relate to our family. It's how we respond when people are, are offensive to us. It's how we deal with crisis. It's how we deal with loss and suffering and pain and sorrow. That's what real worship is. It's how we respond. It's the decisions that we make honoring God or honoring self. Putting Him first or living for me. And this is where most of us are. So it is here that the battles in temptation are fought. The real battle on the cross took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus was sweating. It was cold. Uh, Luke tells us that it was so cold that Peter, when he followed at a distance, went into the courtyard, and it was so cold that there was a fire, and the guards and things were, had their hands over warming themselves by the fire. It was so cold, Peter risked being identified as his follower and went over and joined them. He needed to get warm. And yet, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke says Jesus was sweating, and it was a sweat that was like drops of blood. And he's crying out to God. The intensity of his agony. The word agony there means it's um, the word that's used for an um, athletic arena. Like in the Olympics. Um, and you see those guys who've been men and women who have given total exertion. And when they get to the finish line, some of them don't even make it that far. And even those who do make it, they just collapse because they've given everything they have. That's agony. And that's what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, even prior to that. The other word, um, the other definition of agony, it's also used for the arena where the gladiators fought to the death. And so, at Gethsemane, Jesus was in the spiritual battle, and he was, it was a fight unto the death. And that's where he made the decision to die to the alternative. Here in John 12, he's dying to this appeal from the Greeks because he knows he's going to send a guy a little later who's going to reach these, these people. But this guy can't go and this guy won't be changed by the name of Paul will not be changed himself unless Jesus goes to the cross. So what this means to make a decision is to die to the alternative is that we either die to self or we die to the will of God. Now that's what we do every day. We either die to self, dying to self, or we die to the will of God for us that day. So Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. 
It's, a, it's an act of surrender. A true act of, of surrender is a letting go of an anxiety about what I might lose. Letting go of an anxiety about what I might lose. Because it's going to cost us everything. And it is a letting go of the desire for what I might gain. So that's what surrender is. Letting go of the anxiety about what I might lose and letting go of the desire for what I might gain. It's Lord, I am in your hands. Glorify your name. It's the same kind of commitment that Job talks about and he was suffering and he didn't know why and he didn't know how long it was going to last and he felt he was dying and he was and he says to God though he slay me yet will I trust in him now that's the point that Jesus was at and he knew that the death was coming it wasn't an option so the place of trial and battle the hour of decision uh, is to make a choice and so what that means is people like Job are speaking out of a, a faith and trust in God <clears throat> and even when he questions and Job questions God and, and God's not intimidated by any of our questions He's not intimidated by any of our questions as long as they are honest question. An honest question is sincerely looking for an honest answer and is willing to receive the answer that's given if it's the truth. And so God's not intimidated by the questions. <clears throat> and Job comes and he takes this. The reason that he can ask those questions of God is because he trusts God so much. If you don't trust him, then you're not, you're not willing to even ask the question. And so there's a relationship there. And so Jesus dies to the alternative, Lord glorify your name, and then he acts on it. So obedience is faith in action. Or another way of saying it is that faith is living obedience. Or it's not faith. It doesn't cost us anything to believe uh, an intellectual principle putting it into practice, living it out is a different deal, isn't it? So faith is living obedience. Obedience is faith and action. This is why Isaiah 64, 6, um, Isaiah is confessing to God and he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. So how do our righteous acts become like filthy rags? Paul answers that in Romans 14, 23. He says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So if we're doing our religious actions just out of habit or because it's the expected thing to do or we don't know what else to do, um, those become filthy rags because it's not the product of faith expressing itself in an active obedience to God so it's interesting um, 
If we talk about God, what do you think of? What comes to your mind thinking about God? Well, that's kind of a nebulous term, you know. Uh, God, uh, he's a spirit. Doesn't have a body. Well, what does a spirit look like? Well, if he's pure spirit, you can't see him, feel him, touch him, smell him, or any other, other senses, you know. So, if we think about God and his relationship with people, what can we put in our mind to come up with that? Well, there's another word, Father. Now that, we can relate to. Now, the word Father has its own problems, doesn't it? Some of us don't know who fathers are. Some of us have had horrible fathers. Some of us have had godly men as fathers, good role models, good fathers, care for their children, um, care for their wives. So it's interesting as we look at the life of Jesus, especially these last days, that Jesus talks about God as Father. Now we know the word Abba. Y'all familiar with the word Abba? Abba is an Aramaic word. It means Father. And that word in the New Testament, it's only used three times. It's not used very often at all. Three times only in the whole New Testament. Normally he just uses the, the, when he's talking about God, the normal word for Father, like we all do. Which is what we should do, isn't it? To see God not as some judge waiting to pounce on us, not somebody with lightning bolts ready to destroy us or, or take away all of our happiness and mess up all of our fun. He's not that kind of a God. He's a loving Father who wants us to become all that we were created to be. And so, these three times, it's a family term, isn't it? Father is a family term. Um, if you say the word father, it means that there's a family. It's got to be father of something. And you can have fathers in different ways. Uh, God is our father because he's our creator. God is our father because it's a, a term of respect and reverence for him, acknowledging his power and authority over us. But uh, it's more than that. It's a family term. And so God is wanting to relate to us in terms of family. That's why he created the family to begin with. And the first command, the very first command God gave to Adam and Eve was a positive one. Be fruitful and multiply. I haven't had a lot of trouble with that, have we? <laughs> That's the one that we struggle with the least, maybe. But So God, from the very beginning, intended the family to be a reflection of the relationship of the Trinity. God revealed himself as father, son. These are family terms. So from the beginning our homes, our families should be the place where people discover about the relationship between God and his son. And that's what our homes are supposed to be. Uh, that unity, that oneness. So in Mark's gospel Chapter 14, verse 36, Mark's account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What he says is, Abba, Father, all things are possible. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So now he's making an appeal to his Father. 
Yet not what I want, but what you want. And that's how he's glorifying his Father. We glorify the Father by being obedient to him. By exalting him in our lives, whatever that means. Most of the time, it's incredible blessing that he pours out upon us. Unbelievable blessing. Um, sometimes it's a blessing outwardly. Not always. And we don't worship him and serve him for what we can get out of it. Although that's part of everything that we do, isn't it? Um, but it's talking about this deep, close walk and relationship to him. Later on, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, as he's dying, he cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So now he's appealing to the power and holiness and majesty of God. At this point is when the wrath of God for your sin and mine where Paul says that he became sin for us and he became a curse, took the curse that we have earned and deserved. He took that curse upon himself. And he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so at this point, um, he's drinking the cup that God had given him, what he was talking to Peter about. As he's dying on the cross, one of the very last things he said was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As he's dying, he's back in the position of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Father, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's a progression here. Uh, back to the relationship that had been there all along. So what does that mean to you and me? In the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray, we know it as the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Did you notice the words? Have we ever thought about what you're praying? It's an incredibly powerful, awesome prayer. And um, if you're raised in a Christian home, I had the fortunate blessing of being raised in a Christian home. And from very small, we prayed that prayer a lot in our house, regularly, and in church, and in youth group, um, all those places. And when you do that over and over and over again, sometimes you start saying the prayer and you forget about what it means. What in the world are you saying? It starts off, my father. We're approaching God as his children. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't it? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That means I'm dying to my kingdom, the kingdom of self. I'm dying to my will. That's what we're praying in the Lord's Prayer. We're back in Gethsemane with Jesus.
So this is what John tells us. To those who did receive him, to, get, to them gave he the right to become children of God. Children born not of the flesh or of a husband's desire, but born of God. Truly his children. This is what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about. Being born again. Being born spiritually. Understanding that now because of God's love and sacrifice for us, we can become part of the family. This is what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus. So the word Abba is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used in Mark's account of the Gospel of, the gospel of Mark, in Mark 14.36 in Gethsemane. It's only used two other times in the whole New Testament. Both times, Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6. Paul is using it to tell us that because of what Christ has done for us, and because of the Holy Spirit poured out upon all flesh because of the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, he says in Romans 8.15, you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's more than just God. It's, it's my Father that I can talk to. He looks at me as he looks at Jesus. He looks at you as he looks at Jesus because of what he's done on the cross. And we can come to him like Jesus. Say, you're my Father. I'm hurting. You're my Father. I don't understand. You're my Father. I, I'm afraid. And we can bring any of those things before Him. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. The one thing that in... Uh, when they use the word Abba, that's family terms, slaves were not allowed to use that name. Children are. So this is what Paul's saying in Galatians. The spirit who calls out Abba Father lives in you, so you are no longer a slave but a son. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. You've been set free. You have to be a slave to old habits. You've been set free by the blood of Christ. So you can live as sons and daughters. So you're no longer a slave but a son or daughter. And since you are children of God, God has made you also an heir. So everything God entrusts to his son, he gives to you and to me. We are God's children. Crucifixion is a brutal very violent way to die. Uh, crucifixion carries with it the beatings and the, uh, the mockery and, and um, all the things that went on before he actually got to the place of the crucifixion. It's a very public thing. Did you notice about the resurrection? On that first resurrection morning, where was the tomb? Where was the tomb? It was in a garden. Where did sin enter into the world? It's in a garden, Garden of Eden. When sin came in and destroyed us all, 
And it's in a garden that they placed Jesus in the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake. And the, ro the stone was rolled away and the angels were there. And in the quietness of that garden, Jesus walked out of that tomb. Now, he didn't need the stone to be rolled away to walk out of that tomb. You remember uh, later on the, Jew, the disciples are going to be in, in this room. The doors closed, everything locked because they are scared to death that what they just did done to Jesus they're going to do to him. And Jesus appears in there. So Jesus doesn't need the stone rolled away to get out of the tomb. That's not a problem for him anymore. The tomb's rolled away for you and for me so that we can see and understand he's not here we can't go and visit the tomb of Jesus and look at a body laid out there it's not going to happen because he's not there he's not dead so in the quiet of that morning um, you've ever been in a garden when the sun just begins to come up early in the morning it's quiet it's peaceful birds begin to sing as they begin to wake up um, because of the dew of the night before there's a fragrant fragrance that comes up from the flowers and the, and the trees that are there uh, it's very very quiet and quietly and silently the sun comes up and quietly and silently Jesus walks out of that tomb there's no fan flare and there's no blowing of trumpets he doesn't go and appear in front of Pilate or Caiaphas or any of these other people he doesn't go and appear to any of the people who persecuted him and ridiculed and mocked him he didn't do any of that it was a very quiet peaceful thing and who did he talk to he talked to the women who had come he talked to his disciples this is family time this is family time the things that you feared you don't have to fear anymore the things that you've grieved over you don't have to grieve over anymore the things that places that you failed, the sin, the shame, the guilt, you don't have to have that anymore. And it's the father sitting down comforting his children saying, I know what you've done and I know where you've been and I know what's happened to you, but it does not matter anymore. And because of his death and resurrection, it has no power over you anymore. You can be free to start new and fresh. It's a new and genuine start. It's not just an idea. It's not wishful thinking. It's a reality. And the empty tomb of Jesus tells us of that reality. And in the quietness and in the stillness, Jesus comes and they begin to discover. And it was hard for them that first Easter. It was hard. They couldn't get their mind around it. Even though he had told them, even though the prophets had been there, even though all of those things had happened, they were not expecting it. And when they told them, they couldn't even believe their own eyes. And the women came back and they told the disciples. They went and looked for themselves and they still didn't believe it. And the guys from Emmaus came and talked to them that night. They still couldn't believe it. But it was true. And he came again and again and again to individuals and then to groups. And he sat down and he said, here I am, touch me. Here I am, not a ghost not some spirit here I am flesh and bones touch it here I am your sins have been forgiven there are the scars your sins have been forgiven 
And so the good news today is, hallelujah, he is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the good news, the best news that the world has ever heard. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The power, the sting, the fear of death is gone, conquered, defeated, swallowed up in the victory of the open tomb. And the risen Lord and the living power of your presence in our hearts and lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we begin to realize, maybe even like Thomas, after many convincing proofs, that we might fall at your feet as he did and say, My Lord and my God. So, Lord, we pray that that would be true in our hearts today. That the joy of the Lord would overpower the mourning and the grief, the sorrow and the pain. And that you would be exalted, the Lord of life. For it's in your name we ask it. Amen.